Growing a business is hard, but it does not have to be. Once a week, we take a break from the hustle and bustle in business to talk about innovations and what's new in the C-suite. This is the Fractional C-Suite Retreat, and I'm Joseph Frost. Pull up a seat at the fire, grab a drink, smoke a cigar, and just join me as we relax, learn, and get inspired. This retreat is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow with better marketing strategy. Welcome. Today's guest is a lifelong marketer of technology products and services. He's a sought-after conference speaker and a published author, and he's a fractional CMO at Your CMO. Welcome, Michael Carter. How are you? Good, Joe. How are you? Good. I'm so glad that uh, you're on the call today on the podcast. It'll be a, a fun hour or so together. Yeah, uh, we spend, looking forward we spend, to it. We spend a lot of time together uh, on uh, throughout the week as a as a team, but it's always good to get this one-on-one time. So thanks for being here. Yeah, glad to, uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's just get it started. The, the, the question I like to ask all the guests um, is what's an opportunity that you see in the C-suite uh, that maybe other C-suite members uh, see or don't see? Yeah, um, well, I think it's the nature of how marketing's changed and I'm not sure that quite uh, translates to all members of the C-suite. Um, you know, it, it's it's now a uh, more of a science than an art. Um, there's an ability to track performance and tie dollar investments uh, to outcomes in ways that you know two decades ago we just didn't enjoy because it it was an entirely different game. Even if you were B two B, you were still using you know printed publications, and there was no way to know who looked at the ads exactly. Uh, so I I've, I've, I've had a number of roles beyond marketing, but mostly marketing. And I think those other roles taught me the importance of being able to demonstrate um, the ROI on marketing. And, you know, early on in my career, that was difficult, uh, my marketing career. But um, as as marketing has changed, become more digital and it's, uh, it's nature more data driven um, uh, to the degree now that you can market in very discrete, specific, focused areas, which is to me, always a key, you know, if you, if you think your product is for everybody in the world, you're probably in trouble. Uh, yeah. But today, um, you can actually seek out that perfect, uh, most profitable uh, match for your product and, and speak to them in relevant ways. So I, I think the specificity, the measurement, the ability to track investments, those are all things I'm not sure, um, you know, a lot of CEOs I meet today who are younger than I am don't actually realize uh, what can be done there. Yeah, I think that's the elusive question or it's been elusive for a long time is what's the ROI of your, your marketing. And certainly with the digital marketing, you can get really clear on what that looks like. But still some of the traditional marketing is hard to, <laughs> uh, to monetize or um, you know, to track back to the, the origins. So how do you reconcile that in, in an engagement where you, know, you still need a mix usually of yeah. uh, more than just yeah. one tactic and not all the tactics are the same from an ROI standpoint and tracking and metric standpoint. How do you go about dealing with that uh, issue with clients? Well, there, you know, there's, there's still, like you say, soft areas. And, and I think, you know, a, a common soft area through the last 10 years of my career has been conferences, right? I mean, they cost uh, prior to the pandemic, they cost an enormous amount of money. Um, it was always very difficult to uh, understand any kind of uh, one-to-one out of what came out of that. You send 12 sales guys or six or two or whatever the number is, and you buy some boost space and a sponsorship. And then, you know, $40,000 later, you're not sure what you got for your money or in some cases far more money than that. It's interesting to me in that I do think there's ways around uh, not around that, but there are ways to get a sense of the value of those. Um, I had one assignment where I was working for a, a company that had an enormous conference budget. And I worked for a CEO, one of my favorites, um, who just, you know, he, he had that CEO instinct that something went right when he saw 15 sales guys be taken out of the field for a week. And, um, but it was very difficult for him to have a, a rational or a, a data-driven argument with anyone about that. So basically, 
we just put some measures in place. You couldn't go to the conference unless you had X number of customer or prospect meetings. You had to document those. Uh, we took booth, you know, it still didn't necessarily draw the line, but it was indicators. And, mm -hmm. you know, what I often tell uh, CEO, uh, CEOs that I work with is if we can't know exactly, for instance, not everybody comes to your website is a customer or a prospect, but if your website's traffic is growing and all other measures are counted for, it's probably got something to do with your marketing and you have uh, uh, other ways to tell what falls out of those landings on your page. Same thing with conferences. You may not know the one for one, but you, you will get a sense. You can have some guidelines uh, that, that make you more comfortable than, uh, you know, buying a buying in the old days, buying a Wall Street Journal ad and not knowing exactly what came of it. Yeah. So although it's not as uh, easy to measure the ROI of a, an AdWord click that turns into a sale online, you can still put some common sense measurements and <laughs> metrics into any any activity, whether it be sales or marketing or otherwise. Uh, that makes sense, uh, and I, I think that's you know that's that's important. It still doesn't make it easy to to choose which the right tactic or not because you're. you're at the end of the day, you're kind of making a guess, you know, is this conference going to pay off or not? Do I spend 40 grand here? Or do I spend 40 grand over there? And if there's no direct ROI, it's just kind of. Well, and, and you know, and the, the other thing is um, pandemics had an interesting effect on conferences. It, it is almost, they're almost in a renaissance period now. I think it's cabin fever to some degree. But, but I've had clients, some clients I work with just go crazy to go to conferences now. And they're actually getting you know, what, what seemed to be pretty good uh, traction from them. I, I think that while we can do a lot of things uh, remotely, um, the human touch, I mean, people buy from people and, yep. and people market to people. So uh, that human touch was missing from kind of the normal background noise that we had before the pandemic. And now these conferences are the best way to get a large dose right away. And was at a conference in February, and it was actually the largest. It's the first physical conference they had in, uh, well, since before the pandemic. And it was the largest one they ever had by a lot. So it is, you know, not that we expect to commonly be factoring in pandemics, but there are things that happen within markets that, uh, that impact things. And uh, uh, the tactic uh, or the, the option is your from uh, two years ago that wasn't very good may become uh, a little bit more trackable, a little bit more recognizable. So um, I think, yeah, I, I, you know, I had a, actually a CEO say to me the other day, uh, something that I thought was not all of the people I work with say this. He, he said, you know, marketing's hard. And I thought <laughs> marketing, marketing is hard. Uh, it's not that the, a lot of the stuff that people associate with marketing, they think that's, if they think it's hard, they typically think that's the hard part. The hard part is all the process and, and research and work you need to do beforehand. And some of that is the reason it's a little harder to tie things later on, you know, what did I get for my money? Um, I mean, you and I both know that, that um, understanding the customer's voice is, is incredibly uh, hard and it's often overlooked. I mean, in fairness to business owners, they're trying to pay employees. They've got a, a product or a service that they feel very strongly about and, and have reason to. They've got some initial customers, that sort of thing. But they've got, you know, these three areas that aren't really working and, and uh, can be as simple as say, say well, my, my Google AdWords aren't working, okay? Uh, you go out and interview, you know, half dozen customers or do a survey, a customer survey, and you find out almost none of the customers rely on Google, <laughs> you yeah. know, so, yeah. so and, until you understand uh, the way they acquire their information, what barriers they have, they feel they have to satisfy when they're moving towards a decision, you can be doing something that it seems to have no ROI or little ROI or difficult ROI and find out, well, you're not really speaking to your client anyway. So that grunt work that goes on at the beginning, to me, it can't be, uh, it can't be underestimated the value of it. It takes time. I mean, we, you know, the methodology we use at your CMO of, of uh, doing an extensive audit at the beginning doesn't, you know, a lot of owners, a lot of CEOs are in a hurry. They want to 
have an impact right now. If they're talking to us, a lot of times they're, they need to up their game. So that means their game hasn't been entirely satisfying until that time. And so they want to do something different. They want it to feel better, have more impact. Well, I understand, but for a fact, if we don't do this, uh, you know, four or five week uh, bit of work here, uh, we aren't going to have the impact you want us to have because we won't have the data and the information and the insights you want us to have. Yeah, it was uh, just yesterday I was at a conference, a three hour conference with a bunch of other business owners. And the uh, topic was cash flow, cash is key. Mm -hmm. uh, the speaker was uh, internationally known uh business guru grown several companies but he, you know his, his focus is on cash flow and how to increase your um, your your business finances and the first thing he led with was for the first 30 minutes it was all about how well do you know your core customer and he said and it was like a marketing lecture it's like do you know that you know the not just the demographics but what's the name that you give to your core customer bob or john or Corey, or, yep. you know jenny or and what what does he do what are his struggles every day what's what's his eight to five look like and it was like marketing 101 and that was the first yeah. thing the guy said and if you don't know your core customer none of this other stuff matters you, you can't grow your business you can't grow your cash you got to know your customer the next thing he spent the 30 minutes on once you know your core customers, how uniquely different from your competition. Yeah, it's a exactly. Solve your core customers' yeah, problems. Yeah, it was like marketing one hundred and one again, one hundred and two, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. I and mean, then, it's, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. and then his, his third point was, how are you getting that message in front of your core customers? Like the tactics. Like <laughs> this is my <laughs> sounds familiar. Sounds all familiar to me, but that's uh, not the way most businesses think about no. things. And this was a cash flow expert saying, you got to think about this first. Yeah. Then yeah. you can start getting into growing your cash flows because once you know your customer well enough and you know what they need, you can be uniquely different from the competition and you can get in front of them and tell that story. Now you're able to start enhancing your business. So I thought that was funny. That is that. Well, he's he's a pretty enlightened finance guy, I'd say, or a cat or a, a cash uh, speaker. The, yeah. You know, I worked quite a bit with entrepreneurs in the in the fintech space. So companies that come up with new innovations that you and I might use, uh, or they might sell to somebody that we use. And, you know, these are pretty smart guys, pretty savvy guys. And a lot of times they start out sort of, you know, bootstrapping um, their, their organization and um, they go to get money uh, from, you know, let's just say, you know, first round, uh, A round VCs. And they're shocked when the VC wants to know, tell me about your market. Uh, tell me who your competitors are, what's your customer like? You know, they, sure, the VC wants to see the spreadsheet, but basically the VC is investing in a company that's, the spreadsheet is mostly fiction at this point anyway. Let's be honest. This is hope. This is pro forma. It's hope. If you can't answer the question, and then he wants to know how many salespeople and what's your marketing budget. You know, yeah. how much money of the money I give you are you going to spend on marketing? And I've been in that, you know, car coming back from those with, you know, CEOs when I've just been more of a business advisor. And, you know, well, why are they so interested? Because if you don't get those elements right, you're going to waste their money. They already have trouble. It's one in 10 for them on a good day. And that's when people have a lot of that locked down. But if they don't have any of that locked down, they just, they won't. Unless you have a record, they're not going to spend a whole lot of time. With you. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the customer's changed a bit since, uh, you know, the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. Just as much as the marketing tools and tactics have changed. Uh, but the concept of you just people buy from people, that hasn't changed. Right. Um, you know, I guess when you're online and you're transacting uh, you know, on Amazon, you're probably not buying from people. But at some level, you, you probably were influenced by a person to buy that product or service on Amazon. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The brand has gotten reviews, somehow, right? some way. Yep, reviews, people look people at the reviews. reviews. And it's been a big thing in the uh, in the industry uh, recently about you know Chinese companies juicing their uh, their uh, reviews online, and Amazon's cracking down on that. Why? Because people count on those. I mean, yeah. uh, we don't talk to one another as much anymore, but we look on there, and 
and um, hope to find something to hang our hat on since we don't know the person selling it to us. And sometimes it is pretty, you know, half of what Amazon sells is behind is stuff made by somebody else, sold by somebody else that Amazon fulfills. So, yeah, I mean, it, people do buy from people and relevance is still uh, the relevance of the offer to what you're looking for is maybe more critical now. I mean, because if I'm talking to you personally, if you sell me something personally and I don't get it or what you say doesn't make any sense to me, you'll see it on my face. But if you're mm -hmm. selling to me, uh, you know, something off a SaaS platform where you're offering me, you know, a piece of business software for two grand a, a year or whatever it is, or a piece of personal software for X, if you're not communicating with me, you'll never know it. I just won't be there. I mean, I'll just be gone. I will have moved on to somebody who can tell the story that they that matters to me. So it 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 may be more critical than ever that we understand the you know the voice of the customer because we don't have that chance for as much for personal touch or visual um, reading of of who we're trying to speak to. Yeah, and it doesn't really take that much energy and effort and resources to understand it. It just you got to slow down for a second and do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. and it. And a lot of business, like I work with a lot of business owners and been around a lot of entrepreneurs for a long time. And many of them have started their businesses or founded their businesses. And early on, they were talking to customers every day. So yeah, they really right. knew the voice of the customer well and to, because that they just had so many conversations. Well, fast forward 5, 10, 20 years, when's the last time any of those business owners have actually spoken to a customer? Even C-suite members actually spoken to a customer. And they're right. still operating off those assumptions they had from years and years ago. So sometimes it's just a matter of you got to refresh your thoughts. You got to have new right. conversations. You got to bring in somebody new to the table that's going to have that uh, dialogue for you and report back. And it's just shocking yeah. the new insights that you glean and then some of the things you validate that they're still true. Well, we all we all have confirmation bias for one thing uh, when it's something that's our baby, right? Uh, I have a mentor from my corporate time that, you know, became a, a, a investor in small businesses. And he said, you know, nobody likes to have you tell them their baby's ugly. Um, so they tend to not want to hear if somebody's if a customer's telling them there's they'll hear it. And you'll hear they'll hear it a certain way and report back to you and you'll hear it and say, yeah, I don't actually think that's what the customer meant. So it, it, I think the, the ear, and that's, I think the marketing person has to be an honest broker in that. I mean, the chief exec, the chief marketing officer anyway, um, you know, that needs to be, have enough authority and power to stand up to the CEO and, you know, not call bullshit. I mean, after all, he is the CEO, but to be able to say to him, Hey, look, man, uh, this is my, this is my discipline. Um, and, this is what I'm hearing and, and you aren't hearing it and it's understandable, but, but you need to. And so and it happens also when they get a customer now in, in, you know, a lot of software today, whether it's for individuals or businesses they are sold on a subscription basis, right? So you, you pay a year's worth or you get a break a year, you pay month to month and you can stop anytime. Right. Well, you have to win that customer every month, yes. every month. And um, most common reason for for uh, terminating a, a, a subscription is the product didn't do what they thought it was going to do. Now, sometimes that's because the product didn't do what they thought it was going to do because it wasn't made for them. A lot of times it's because the provider of the product never took the time to educate the customer and tell him how that product solves that problem. And there's a... There's a um, phrase emerging um, in the in the uh, cloud-based uh, uh, platform business called software and a service. It used to be called, as you know, SaaS, software and a service. Uh, but but uh, I've worked with a couple of people now, and I, I think it was one of the people I worked with came up with one my one my phrase, but software and a service. And that is critical in these in these subscription base. So you you don't have to you don't win them once in the current environment particularly with technology, you have to win them again and again and again and again. And yeah. that's, that's, you miss a beat there and it's, you, you know, it's, it's uh, immediate. Yeah. Especially when it's, I mean, it's pretty easy nowadays to, to swap softwares. Yeah. All of them have 
you know, even the big like Salesforce, like the big CRMs, like the, the up and coming ones, they all have a little widget that it will pull all your data and will roll it right into the next one. I mean, just down the line, everybody's got an easy way to switch. You got to mm-hmm. earn and keep their trust and show the value month after month after month, which is a good segue to what we do as <laughs> fractional CMOs. Yep. Like, I have this conversation a lot. What's the difference between a fractional professional and a full-time professional? And one of the differences is fractional has got to show up every month. You know, there's no hiding behind this month because <laughs> most of those service offerings are month to month. So right. one of the values right. to an employer is, you know, you've got somebody that's delivering every month so that they're on next month as opposed right. to a, right. you'd expect your full-time people to be delivering every month, but the, the uh, relationship's a little different, yeah, full-time different, and yeah. fractional. Yeah. yeah. How have you found that in your experience? Similar? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been doing fractional work uh, of, of a kind for a long, long time. Um, and you know, I've had gigs that lasted eight years, but they weren't on autopilot, right? I mean, it was eight years of showing up and facing every crisis that business faced for eight years, trying to anticipate some, keep keep other stopping others from happening. Um, but I've, I've come to the conclusion that that I think if I were running my company and it was an early stage company, as most of mine are, or they're they're small and want to go larger. I would probably fractional a lot of uh, use a fractional model for a lot of my uh, stuff. And, and I've seen it. I've seen a buddy here, you know, he started out fractional CMO, fractional HR, fractional lawyer, fractional CPA. And the business grew and that stuff came in, which, you know, meant the fractional people were probably doing what they, they should be doing. And at some point, you know, if you're successful, it grows. But the ability to turn the spigot off and on um, is is sometimes a good sell because you tell them, okay, look, if I don't perform, I'm out of here. But it's also a good incentive from from my side. I never feel I kind of like it. I mean, I have to I have to focus. It gives me a really good reason to focus and um, to make to want to make a difference every time. Not that I didn't when I wasn't on staff, but you're right. It's a little different. You know, you become buddies with everybody else in the C suite, and you. You know, you think, okay, I have a bad day today. Nobody's going to, you know, I make one bad report, you know, this quarter. Nobody's going to can me. But if I'm the fractional person, I make a bad report. They start going, I don't know if this is worth it or not. Yeah. And so it's uh, it's important. It's definitely a different level of accountability uh, and expectations, really. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, that's why we show up and mm-hmm. do the work. Um, and that's why it's a good value for businesses to consider fractional. Uh, whether it's marketing or finance or IT or HR or whatever. Um, what are some of the other differences in your experience between full-time work and fractional work? Well, um, I tell people, I, I stopped, um, I've, I've had, I had a, a, gr- a very good corporate career, very lucky and got to do a lot of really interesting stuff, IPOs and worked abroad and ran, you know, P&Ls and that sort of thing. But the one thing I took away from that is I, I'm a guy that I, and like you, I'm sure, and a lot of our colleagues at your CMO, I want to make a difference. I don't want to get up and put it on autopilot and say, okay, here we go. We're just, you know, boom, boom, boom. If it runs that well on autopilot, you don't need me. I mean, you don't, because uh, as one of my uh, uh, mentors said, you're not good when you're bored. I'm not good when I'm bored because I'm not happy. Um, so I want to puzzle, you know, I want to puzzle and I want that, I want to be solving that puzzle, um, at that strategic level for, uh, the other disciplines within the business, um, you know, certainly sales, but also even the CFO, I want him to know, you know, we're solving that problem. We're, we're using that investment wisely. So I like that part of it. I like, I like the intensity of it. Um, I played sports a lot. I you know, always wanted the ball <laughs> when it was coming down the down there. I didn't always, you know, I didn't always, you know, score, but I always wanted the ball. And and that's kind of the personality I think that makes for a good fractional person is you say, okay, I know what I'm doing. I, I know the discipline, but I not only know that I want to, I want to make something happen. I'm, I'm going to err on the side of, of action than uh, being passive and just saying, okay, everything looks hunky dory. And I don't trust hunky dory. usually. Right. <laughs> Not in business anyway. 
Yeah, and it's and you get a little more diversity as a fractional in that in that action. Yeah, you know, you're, that's right. You're working right. you're working on more than one problem at a time. Uh, well, you know, often it's you know, a few different clients that have a, yep. uh, a few different things going. You get to mix it up a bit. You get to stay in the in, you know, stay in the game uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to mm-hmm. just kind of sitting through the uh, sitting in the stands watching things going on, which not a bad thing either sometimes no 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 it's fine i mean it's i don't it's just your personality and and you're right i think the variety is is good and and you know i think what's amazing to me is you don't realize how often a piece of something over here from a business completely different than what your clients in over here has a has a, a relevance or a connection or causes you to see into it a different way you know i i um I, I think that that's a value that fractional people bring, uh, particularly those that are, you know, uh, um, in the in the right set of shoes, uh, and able to think strategically of of how problems have analogies and how even though this person is I don't know selling you know doggy daycare and this person's selling a SaaS hiring platform, a SaaS based hiring platform, there's an there's a similarity between what this person's up against and what this person's up against. And they have a strategic route and, and that strategic route can be solved by similar uh, uh, actions on both sides, different targets, different offering, different service, but, but still uh, that kind of correlation I like too, because I, you know, that oftentimes it's not linear thinking. It it needs to have a little, uh, it needs to be a little circular in, in your thinking too. Yep. For sure. If you were giving advice to somebody looking to hire a fractional person, um, what were what were some of the things you would tell them to look for uh, when making the the decision to hire somebody? Well, I, I, you know, when I've hired people and I've had posts where I've had to put together a team, um, you know, culture fits real important even for marketing people. So even if fractional person is not there all the time. They should fit into your team. I mean, they should be a, a part as uh, an important part of your team. They should be in those C-level meetings. They, um, they need to be uh, at the table. They need to have a chair at the table. And for that reason, they have to fit. And, you know, not everybody's a fit. Not every client's a fit. Not every fractional person's a fit. And, uh, you know, it may be that the, the owner hiring the fractional person really wants to get this problem solved. And it may be the fractional person really wants to work for this person because they, they, they'd like to do the gig. But if there's no fit, you do yourself a, a credit for neither one of you to go down the road. So that's the first thing I look for. Is this person a fit? And there are, you know, there are, uh, and we use them in our organization, there are assessments and other things you can take that give you insights into people. They're proven, they're scientific. Why not use them, right? And, and uh, um, I was talking to a business owner the other day asking her, uh, well, we have a client I, I referenced earlier who's, uh, who has a uh, applicant tracking software that has some, you know, really cool uh, features and functions in it that are, that help a, a smaller business hire more uh, A players and, and track those players, et cetera. And so I asked her, I said, what, when did you decide you needed to go do something? She said, because I kept hiring people that I had to fire. And she said, and not only was it expensive, it destroyed the psyche of my company. And I thought, man, man, that's an enlightened observation right there. I mean, the, the idea that it's not, it's not just the money. Um, so maybe too fine a point on that, but, but I think fit is so important and it's never more important than at that highest level where you've got uh, the, the brain trust of the company working together. Um, I'm a little less fussed about um, what specifically the person has done. I am interested in their career. I would be interested in, you know, how long have they been doing this? What kind of environments have they done it in? Did they work in my industry? To me, marketing is marketing. And um, you're not paying a CMO necessarily for uh, subject matter expertise. Um, you are paying them for the subject matter expertise around marketing, but not necessarily around your product. Any good fractional CMO will pick that up pretty quick. If you if you sold one product or service or marketed one product or service, you sort of get the problem being solved and what the, the hammer that's being used to hit the nail. 
it's not as mysterious as often uh, people inside the company think, because inside the company you think, well, we have this very complicated business. Very yeah. yeah, you do. You do. There's no doubt about it. But I've seen this movie. You know, I've seen this movie twice, three times, a half dozen times. I know how the I know how the movie ends. And so you you need you need to know that they have that level of experience functioning in a C level, at a C level, right? That's the most important thing I, I find is I want to hire a person and plug them in at a level where they'll be successful. If you take too right. young, too inexperienced, somebody that doesn't know how to say no the right way to a CEO, not no, I won't ever do that, but I don't think that's the right thing to do. You're the boss. If you want to spend money that way, I'll spend it the best way I can. But I'm telling you, I don't think that's the right way to spend your money. That's hard. And it's also easier when you're a fractional, I think. When I was in a, on a career track, you know, well, my bosses would tell you I never had any problem telling them what I thought. But, but for the most part, you're, care, you're more careful, right? It's not that as fractionals, we, we're not sensitive to the who's the boss. It's that I'm here to help you. Uh, my career doesn't depend on you. Uh, I want to help you. And I, I'd like to believe I made a difference. And if I don't tell you the truth, if I don't tell you the facts as I see them for what you pay me for, then we'll get at right. Again, it should be what everybody on your team does. But we both know from experience that that's not what happens. Uh, I had a CEO once that, you know, you've heard of him, skip level meetings, and he would do skip levels. So he would do not his direct reports. He would meet with the ones uh, two or three levels down. And, and uh, I asked him once, I said, why, why do you call me? I mean, I was a young buck at the time. And, and he goes, because the guys that report to me won't tell me the truth because it'll affect their bonuses. She said, he said, you don't rely on me for your bonus. So you'll tell me the truth. And, uh, and, you know, that, that is a problem sometimes in, inside of an organization versus outside. It's very hard for people to uh, feel comfortable uh, saying, hey, that part of the baby's a little ugly. So I look for that. I, I like truth tellers. I tell people that uh, I, want, I want to be disagreed with. So when I'm hiring, if I were hiring a fractional person, I'd want to know, okay, do you have trouble disagreeing with me? I mean, can you constructively not, I don't want you to call me names, but can you constructively disagree with somebody uh, based on your expertise? Well, yeah, I wouldn't be, as far as I'm concerned, I wouldn't be a C-level if I could do that. But right. so that that's important. The, the, I'm assuming the other, because you can, you can kind of verify the other, you know, how much experience and all that. But those kind of attributes are what I would look for if I were hiring a fractional anything. Yeah, those are great. I hear fit a lot. Uh, it's surprising. It, it was, it's not as intuitive, but it is so important. If, if that fit's mm -hmm. not there at the fractional level, just like in a full-time employee level, if it's not there, it's, it's, it can be very, very difficult for all parties. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, it's hard to flush that out um, always, you know, especially in, I wouldn't say project-based work is fractional, but, you know, this, this idea that it's not a full-time commitment, it's not as, high of a priority for the client to find a mm -hmm. fit and so they're not searching for it and most fractionals are uh you know they're they're eager for a, a gig so they're gonna right, not right. be as as uh you know searching for it either because they know it's just a part-time gig you know they got more than one yeah um yeah. and i've seen it with our cmos uh, i've seen it yeah. with other fractionals when that fit's not there it's pretty apparent pretty quickly you know it doesn't yeah. last for long um, yeah. And that's an expensive lesson for everybody. Waste it is. Of time, and it's waste not, of money. It's, it's not any fun. I mean, who wants to, you know, it becomes a headbutting contest, not because anybody intended it to be, but it's not a, a fit in that nobody will give ground. It's not, not a fit because nobody will give ground. It's a fit because there just isn't a personality match. I mean, they, they talk about it with pilots, right? You want cockpit synergy. You got to have two guys that kind of like each other up there, you know, pulling the levers and pushing the wheel pushing the yoke and if, same in business. Uh, yeah, I can see your point. I mean, I think that is true. It, it, um, you're thinking, well, so if I don't like them, I'll just, I'll just, you know, we'll just terminate our engagement. Even yep. that's like you say, expensive. Um, yeah. and I appreciate that we spend time, you know, within your CMO, we spend time looking at fit and we do tell people when we think that maybe it's not necessarily the the move they make now they might make it here but maybe not right now maybe something else would be uh, more logical and we try to help them out with that uh 
And it's not that our CMOs don't want the work. Of course we do. We want, we want to work, make money and, and uh, help our families. But, but it's, it's really takes years off your life when you get it wrong. And yeah. uh, I'm not sure any amount of money is worth taking years off your life. At least when you're my age, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, one of the topics I like to bring up uh, is leadership and trying to understand everybody's got a different definition of what a leader's role is. And I'm just curious, what, what do you think the, the main role of a leader is? Well, that's, it's a great question. And um, I think a, a leader is uh, to, to me, the model that serves pretty well, uh, it has served me pretty well in career is, is the coach model, right? I, when I've had people on my team and I've tried to, I've tried to be the leader I want to be for them. We got to get stuff done. We want to win the game. This is not a, you know, this is not a nonprofit. <laughs> so we're, you know, we got to make money. We got to do the right thing. But if you make a mistake, I'm not going to kill you. In fact, I'm going to tell you about the time I made a mistake. And um, you're going to be free to make mistakes up until a point and, and learn from you. Because if you don't, you'll never grow. I'll never get anything out of you because you'll be hiding behind your um, your your fear. So I think the coach model works uh, works with real well for me. And you know the thing is, there's so many different types of coaches. Um, the the uh, you know there's the I don't know there's uh, Bill Self at Kansas is different than Calipari at uh, at UK who's you know different than pick one uh, Dabu Sweeney coaching football at at Clemson. They're all in in Saban down at out. They're all different. They treat their guys differently. Uh, some of them are really right down there with the guys, their buddies. Some of them are coaches that say, I'm the man and you'll do it the way I want to do it. As long as it works, you don't, you know, I'm the one that gets fired. So you're going to do it my way. None of that's wrong. It's, it's the fit for the people you have. So when I say coach, I don't think there's a, you know, oh, hey, I'm going to teach you the, you know, how to shoot a layup in all cases. So I, I like that model. I think the the problem with Lee, the problem that, the thing that gets overlooked with leadership and it's a natural byproduct of success for a leader is communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it gets underestimated just how much people value he- hearing from leaders in their companies. Um, and they don't very much. And like I said, in a lot of businesses, and like I said, I, I think it's just a byproduct of the CEO gets busy or the, the head of the department gets busy and they got a thousand things to do. And, and, and like everybody else, they're doing more with less. And, and then they, they think, well, everybody, I'll send an email. Everybody knows that. Well, that, that's not An email is a, is a memo. It's not communication. It's a memo. So I think that's the thing I have consistently seen that made a difference between the CEOs I worked for that were incredibly effective and there was a lot of loyalty to them and people who would, you know, charge the hill for them. Uh, Those CEOs communicated a lot. They were accessible. When they said their door was open, it was open. Uh, They found a way to to make themselves accessible and that made them authentic and that made people want to do things for them. The ones that were less successful, they, I mean, we, this still amazes me. We, we, uh, I, I got a gig where I had a company that had five brands and it was a small software company has five brands. And, and so the CEO comes to me and says, I know we can't afford five brands. I said, not unless you're, you know, Procter and Gamble or GE or GM. And so we ended up consolidating his brands, you know, creating one position for the brand, uh, creating the, the marketing and the messaging under which all the uh, it was a lot of products which fit in the various industries would fit. And then he said, well, we got to go explain this to everybody that works for us. And I mean, he said that, not me. I didn't say it to him. He said it to me. And going to explain to everybody that workforce meant getting on an airplane and flying to South Africa, uh, Ireland, Europe, wow. uh, uh, Melbourne. I mean, we flew, we flew all over the place. And he flew on all those and, and the CEO. Right. Uh, and he was a, he was part of a it was a small software company. He was publicly traded. Well, pulling a CEO out of a publicly traded company for a couple of weeks to globetrot is not an easy thing to do. But he was right. It made a big difference because brand, those brands weren't just abstractions. There were people who worked for those brands. 
And they right. needed to hear from him and be able to ask him questions about why this was a good idea. And me telling them wouldn't have worked. The two of us telling them had to happen. So I think communication is vital to leadership um, because it gets people to understand you and to follow you. And that, that you know, unfortunately, in a technologically driven uh, business environment, it can get it can get uh, it, it takes a lot of intention to do that. Yeah. And especially in today's day and age where everything is so hard to sift through the noise, it, it takes extra t- attention and intention to, to make that work. I'm guilty. I know that in my organizations, I don't communicate as much as I would like to. And then when I, there are moments where I realize from you know, people saying to me, Oh, it's so good to have you here explaining that. Like, oh, well, I didn't realize that I hadn't explained it right before. You, know, you, you kind of find out about it after the fact, too, and it just hits you like, I wish I would have been a little more uh, aware of it sooner. Uh, but it's Yeah, hard. I think everybody's guilty of it. I mean, the only reason you know you're, you should do it is that you have enough awareness to know you're not doing it, right? Yeah. So it's, it's just part of why it's so easy today to get, you know, it's, it's probably easier today than it's ever been because businesses are far flown post pandemic. We're not even all sitting in the same state or country. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, special effort has to be made to do it. And then it just gets, it's what it can be way down the list to doing things that pay the bills. Right. Yeah. This is a tough time for um, businesses uh, all around from a marketing perspective. I think it's also tough from a uh, in employee perspective and fractional yeah. is certainly a, a way to solve some of those potential hiring problems. How do I retain and hire good people? You know, I, I saw a, uh, a graph the other day that showed that the, the largest percentage increase of people resigning is older. It's the, the top mm-hmm. age groups because they're looking for their board or they're able to find something new or different. And I think fractional is what they're looking for, consulting or something like that. After the pandemic, you get a reset. And like, what do I really like what I'm doing kind of thing? Yeah, right. Um, so people are leaving, but that means people are available. So I think right. from, from business perspective, it's a great solution uh, when you're looking for leadership to look fractionally. Um, right. What are some of the characteristics uh, of a good leader? You know, some of those roles you said are coaching and communication. What are some of the characteristics of a good leader, fractional or otherwise? Yeah. Um, well, accessibility is is the is not quite like communication. Um, but but it can be pretty easy to wall yourself off, particularly in times of crisis, because you're afraid you're going to say something wrong if somebody asks you a question you weren't prepared for. I think it's it's I love it when somebody when a leader says I was I I, I told you that and I was wrong about it. I mean, yeah. I, I uh, what that does is that creates an environment where your people will serve you better, be more productive because they're not afraid of making a mistake. Because let's face it, most of us say people in the medical industry and a few other airplane pilots, et cetera. We don't work in businesses where one mistake is going to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I used to, I, I had a lady that worked for me, God, perfectionist. I love her. Great, great person. Very productive, very good at marketing, but she made a mistake. She just fell to pieces. I, I would say, okay, so, so did anybody die? Nope. Okay. Pretty good day. Then nobody died. Let's just move <laughs> on. Right. I <laughs> mean, but I think a, a leader being able to say that opens the opens the uh, door for that. The other thing I, I think is uh, is adds to authenticness, which I think is important, is um, saying I don't know. I mean, a lot of us feel like when we're in leadership positions, we have to have all the answers. I, you know, there's no way I have all the answers, even in marketing, because it's a huge field and it's changing every day and, and there's new tools and new ways of doing things and, and um, just abundant lessons to learn at any one point in time. Um, and a leader is just simply not going to know all there is to know. Um, and being able to say that to people, um, I don't know how many customers I've talked to that said, what I really liked about that company was when they didn't know, they told me they didn't know. And they went and found the answer and came back and told me what it was. Right. I mean, even the customers don't expect you to know everything. So um, that that's important. I think demonstrating the same 
balance, life-work balance that you want your people to have, you have as a leader, you have to demonstrate that. Because your actions speak louder than anything you're going to say to them. And if you're in the office 60 hours a week as a leader, or, or you, you, know, you work 12 hours a day, they're going to feel like unless they do that, they, they're, they're at risk. Um, one of the things I heard shortly after um, you know, we got a little bit more back to normal business was uh, a lot of CEOs were saying, fine, you don't have to come to the office. And, and um, one, one uh, HR person or specialist, leadership specialist at Wharton said, yeah, but if you tell them that, you can't be in the office all the time either. Right. Right. Because that's telling them that they don't have a future with you if you're in the office all the time. So you have to, you know, it, it's simple. It's kind of like communications. We all know we should do it. And we all know actions speak louder than words. But when you're a, a leader, it's 10 times that, you know, it's, it's, it's not, I'm not saying leading a company is like being a parent, but do kids ever forget the thing you want them or ever not remember the thing you want them to forget? I mean, the thing you did that you would never want them to do, they'll remember it the first time you tell them not to do that. Well, it's the same with leader, uh, in, with leaders, the, the actions you take are what they think they need to be doing as well. And it, I mean, time and again, studies have shown balance is really, really important. And I think that that's some of what's come out of the pandemic, right? Even Absolutely. leaders have said, some of the leaders are going, hey, this is really nice. I got, to, I got to be in my office without a bunch of people knocking on my door and I got to control when I talk to people, when I communicate, this is great. No, no. And they begin to feel a little bit more balanced. Well, I think that that you know, it's essential that you give people that, that balance. And now these days, like you were pointing out, Joe, if you don't, they'll go somewhere else and find somebody who will. Right. Yeah. When we're seeing it and it's happening, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's today's reality. Uh, it's a lifestyle, uh, leader, uh, or lifestyle businesses, lifestyle leaders, lifestyle employees, if they want to, yeah. They want to have the balance. It's important. It's, it's a reset, the global reset. And yeah. uh, I don't know that I, why I would care. I mean, um, when this all started, I had to be working with a CEO that really didn't like the whole concept of people working remotely. And and uh, uh, I handed him a, I handed him a, uh, a study. But before I handed him a study, I said, "Well, what what's your real what's your real pain? Me, be honest, me. I'm not going to go out and tell the other employees." He said, well, I, don't, I just don't trust their work and then they're at home. I said, I think that's an understandable impression. I said, read this study by the U.S. Labor Department that shows when they're at work, their actual hours of productivity are a little over four. Mm. So how do you know they're working when they're here? Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Too. And, and, and he, you know, he said, that's a great point because I, I don't. I said, I, as a lifelong worker from home, I had an office at that point, but I said, a lifelong worker from home, I'm more productive, I'm more balanced, I'm more chilled, I'm more creative, I'm all of those things, because I got my dogs here, I got kitchens there, it's my coffee, it's not your coffee, um, if I want to take, if I want to get up and take a walk, it's in my neighborhood, right, um, if I want to have lunch with my wife, I don't have to meet her somewhere, I can go into the, you know, out on the back deck and have lunch with her, I mean, it's a thousand percent better um, in the right environment and you're more productive. So I think, you know, there's just those type of changes now that yeah, there, you still get some old school refusals. And there's some businesses that you can't do that with. I mean, there's just some businesses that have to be in person. I mean, that's just common sense. But for most of us, where we are is where we can be where we work. Yep, absolutely. So let's change uh, subject a little bit. So what, what do you like to do when you're at home? What do you like to do when you're not at work? Let's put it that way. What are, what are some uh, hobbies? Uh, I live in Memphis, Tennessee. So um, I'm, a, and I'm not a fan of music because I live in Memphis, Tennessee, or a fan of the blues because I live. I was that way before I came. So I enjoy the Memphis uh, music scene. And, and if you're a foodie, this is another good place to live. Our kids are grown, have their own families. Um, and uh, we, uh, we and I think my wife and I both, we got to the empty nest part and went, what's the big deal? This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> My wife never mourned the leaving of quote, the babies. Um, um, and uh, so we like 
and having each other, you know, in the house to ourselves. We also like them being here. So it's, but, but it's, it's just, it's different. It's our space. Um, we are uh, dog people. Uh, we uh, rescue uh, dogs. We have a, a around here somewhere about uh, a Pyrenees that uh, is our most recent addition. Um, he was rescued from a kill shelter. I don't know. Three months ago, emaciated. Oh, wow. Now he weighs about 105 pounds, and he's just knocking around here like a champ. So, um, and we're supposed to be foster parents, but I think he's probably going to be a become our dog because we've just grown so attached to him. He's a character. Um, so we love dogs. We have to. We have uh, him. That his name is Dax, after a town that's actually in the Pyrenees in France, and then Molly. Uh, O'Shea, who is our Irish Wolfhound. They're both about the same age. They're both eight. So we have walking around the house about 250 pounds of dog between the two of them. <laughs> and, um, but we enjoy their coming. I can't imagine really that's a big part of my life is the dogs. Um, I ride bicycles. Love, I love road biking. Um, um, reading. Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, do some writing and other things. So, you know, it's a little mix of things. I'm a little bit of a uh, attention span guy. So I, I stick my nose into a lot of things yeah, just to, sure. to keep myself interested. But uh, yeah, so, so and we enjoy them. We've been in Memphis about five years, really good city. Uh, it's called America's largest town because it's kind of got a town atmosphere, but it's, uh, it's about 800,000, 850,000 people. So it's far bigger than a lot of people think. Um, but uh, yeah, all all's good, and and uh, we didn't get divorced during the pandemic. I don't think we even got close, so we're happy about liking each other enough to make it through that. Um, but uh, we have two grandkids; those uh, we take time to be with them from time to time, and they come here to uh, to spend uh, weeks in the summer when they're not in school. Well, one of them does. Uh, one of them's still pretty young and actually lives in another country. But one lives in Atlanta, Georgia, so she comes up quite often. And, um, so we love we like the grandparent gig. I didn't know if I would or not, but uh, it's fun. It's a, it's really fun. It's like having kids when you had time to have kids, and like yeah. when you have kids and you have no time to have kids. <laughs> yeah, I heard it's a different relationship for sure. You said you were. Um, well, I mean, I know you were traveling. Uh, one of your kids was overseas. What was that trip like? Was it was good. Yeah, so we went uh, boy, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so um, my daughter lives with her husband, who's Danish, and their three-year-old, our grandson Paxton, in Paris, France. And uh, she's lived there for the last three-plus years. Um, before the pandemic, we were over there a lot, and there was a long stretch, and now we're sort of working our way back to being over there more regularly. Um, uh, it was pretty, uh, Par uh, France is kind of back to normal and Paris is kind of back to normal. I mean, they have what we have, which is a, you know, a nagging uh, set of, of COVID cases that aren't insignificant, but they aren't, don't have the same fatality level. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, it's become for them, I think, a little bit like it's become for us, which is, is you know, you're just going to get the flu. And, um, and, and if you've had your vaccine, you won't have as bad a version of it. But we were there when all of the Parisians were on uh, spring break. So it was oh, really wow. weird. Okay. It was really weird. It, I heard more English on the streets of Paris than I heard French for, for a five-day period. But, uh, but lovely city, great. I love, uh, I love the French people and enjoyed it there. We lived in London uh, for three years. So we got a lot of taste of all the countries over there while we were there. Okay, so you lived overseas for a while. I've never spent any time in Paris. Uh, very little time in London, but I, I love traveling and get, getting to explore new places myself. And so uh, curious, what, what's your top two or three things to do in Paris? If I get, get over there anytime soon. Oh, um, well, I mean, the, it's, it's a great walking city. Like so many of the European cities, you can just cover a lot of ground. Um, the uh, uh, Musée d'Orsay is probably my favorite museum there because it's a little bit more digestible than the Louvre. Uh, food's always great. Um, I like the cafes and right, I mean, it's, it, it's just the center of life there. And you just go sit down, have you know, sit outside. Um, the city itself is lovely. 
um, and my my daughter's lucky enough to live in a very pretty part of it. Um, so being outside there is great. Um, um, the food's great. The arts are great. So and, you know, there it's in many ways all these large cities are similar. Uh, they have their own cultural characteristics, but they all have arts and sports and food and music and and people that are you know. I'm like you. I like the aspect of meeting people who see the world a little differently than than I do. And uh, my wife and I often talk about the fact that when we that moving abroad probably changed our kids forever because oh, they were exposed sure. to kids from all over the world. I, I don't see my daughter marrying a Danish guy right. um, who happened to go to the same school she did when she was there. I don't see that happening uh, if she if he had not she had not lived abroad. So it's it's great. It's a great experience. I, there are very few places I've ever gone that I didn't enjoy. Some now seem a little too far to go, <laughs> mm. but uh, but. Uh, uh, I just got back from a trip from uh, Asia to the Philippines yeah. and Singapore, and my flight back was eighteen hours. Oh yeah. Yeah, it it's insane. Uh, I used to go over there quite a bit. Um, and uh, I think the, the one that felt the worst for me was Melbourne. Um, I mean, I love Melbourne, but getting there and back is a little, it's the only time as an adult I've said to the stewardess, are we there yet? Or to the flight, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Because <laughs> it, was, it was a long time over water. But I enjoyed it. It's just uh, that's a long time in a plane. And by the time you laugh, I think when I used to go to Singapore, I figured it all up and it, it took almost 30 hours, you know, to get yep. to the airport, get back, get, I had to fly to Omaha at the time. So. Yeah. Well, Omaha. Uh, so I went, uh, my, my flight got, to, uh, let's see, I was almost not allowed to get on the plane because my paperwork wasn't in order, you know, with COVID these days, you just never know yeah. which country, which form you got to yeah. fill out. Right. I get on the plane, we load half the plane and then they, come over the loudspeaker and say, we have to deplane because there's a flat tire. So as they were loading people onto the plane, evidently the front tire started to, to go flat. So then there was a two hour delay. So then I had to get rerouted because I was flying through Atlanta and I was going to miss my connection. So then they rerouted me to San Fran and I had a 10 hour layover in San Fran before the new flight took off to get to uh, Manila. And so when I, and this was by design, but not not thinking about it at the time. When I landed in Manila, the plan was to pick me up in Manila and drive me three hours to the you know resort we were staying at. Yeah, right. So by the time I finally got to where I was supposed to be, and from when I started the delays, it was forty hours. It was oh. forty mm. hours of travel, and I didn't know what country I was in, what time zone I was in, what. <laughs> what dreamscape i was in it was just a mess and it took took a lot out of me and i it takes a lot oh, to take does. a lot out of me but uh, it does it does we've, we've changed our we've changed our method now and it's not any the story's not nearly as bad but when we get to paris because we know we're going to encounter this three-year-old on the other side of the trip <laughs> um we actually stay at the at the airport the sheraton there at the charles go which is a really nice beautiful hotel we spend the night there and kind of gather our strength and we do the reverse coming back because we will have been with a three-year-old for a week or more and spend the night there before we take off the next day. That, that really helps decompress. That's a, that's, we have said, you know, we're going to make a, a habit of that. If we go very far anywhere, it's just before we see anybody or do anything, we're going to go to bed for a few hours. And that's a great idea. Bearings. Yeah. I yeah it's hard. To, like, as soon as I landed, I planned to be, I'm just going to go hard and then collapse. <laughs> and I, you know, that was a bad idea. It was a lot of work. Well, this has been a good conversation, uh, Michael. And uh, I know you go by Carter, but uh, for our viewers and our listeners, uh, what's the best way for someone to uh, get a hold of you if they want to reach out and touch base? Well, um, I am reachable through your CMO at Carter at YOR cmo.com so that's probably the best best way to get in touch with me um and uh, i'm like everybody else i'm pretty tentative to email would love to talk to anybody who's interested and i charge nothing to talk so uh <laughs> happy to happy to just find out what's going on with people usually i learn as much as they might uh, hopefully learn from me just from conversations so that's probably the best route good well we'll have those uh that, that detail in the show notes but 
I thank okay. you and for all of our listeners. Thanks for for listening to our our stories and our talks. Hope you learned something and uh, hope to uh, hear hear back from all of you soon. Uh, thanks again, Carter. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. And that's a wrap. There's another successful episode of the Fractional C-Suite Retreat. See our show notes and more episodes at fractionalcsuiteretreat.com. This podcast is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow, save time and money with better marketing strategy and fractional execution. Visit them at yorcmo.com, yourcmo.com, spelled wrong on purpose.